Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, I came back safely. And I thank you, Father, that you've continued to draw men and women into this room so we can all study the Word together. And I thank you that you've given me time to prepare and you've given me insight. And I pray, Father, that what I'll have to offer tonight in what we see in the text will be words that transcend what I understand or any in this room might think on their own, that it would clearly come from you, that it would be words of wisdom from the Spirit. We don't come, Father, to hear what men think. The world's filled with opinion. We come to know what you and you alone can reveal. For when all the, men, all the opinion of men and women have, have ceased to be, Father, your word will still be. And we just ask that you would let us work to serve you in greater ways now with what we can learn now, knowing one day we'll know all that you would wish to tell us. And uh, in the time we have, let us serve you with our whole heart. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, it's been a couple weeks, so let me remind you a little of what we were doing. Jude was exposing false teachers in the church as dreamers, as revilers, as depraved sinners. He gave us that pattern, a pattern by which we can see their behavior. They receive their insight from demonic revelations. They engage in immoral and depraved sexual practices, and they use their false teaching as a cover for that licentiousness. They reject church authority while proclaiming themselves to be an authority that is unaccountable to anyone. And they blaspheme the majesty of God and his revealed plan. These men pose a serious threat to the believer in the church because they lead many astray and they create stumbling blocks for those who have not yet come to faith, leading them away from the truth. But what motivates them? Why do they do these things? What's in it for them? Jude has already told us that these men seek to cover their sin with false teaching concerning God's grace. That's licentiousness again. But they could do that without entering the church. They could continue in their life of sin without seeking the church's approval for what they do. And yet they do it. So they must have some motive. They must have some benefit for coming into the church, reaching into the church and finding an audience among us. What is their motive? What is their desire? Jude begins to explain now in verse 10, what drives these men to pursue their evil in the context of the church? He doesn't give the full answer in verse 10. We'll get to it before tonight's over, but it begins there. Verse 10, but these men revile the things which they do not understand and the things which they know by instinct, like unreasoning animals. By these things, they are destroyed. Ironically, while these false teachers claim to possess a new and better spiritual knowledge, Jude says they speak concerning matters that they don't understand. They claim to have spiritual understanding, claim to have spiritual wisdom, spiritual knowledge, and they come offering that knowledge to the church. They claim to be teachers of the word. We know that. But Jude says they are ignorant of the very things they claim to know. They are spiritually ignorant of the truth. That's further evidence that we are talking here about unbelievers who have joined themselves to the church culture, thinking themselves as one who understands the faith. It's ironic that they come in to teach a group that they themselves can't understand, truly. They have come short of the grace of God, to use the term Hebrews uses. They have nothing they know more than what they have assumed in their own flesh. To quote Peter 
out of Acts chapter 8, when he speaks to that magician Simon, who had sought to be one of the brethren by the purchasing of the Spirit of God, Peter says in Acts 8.20, Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you. In Greek, it literally reads, Go to hell with your silver. Because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. And then he adds, you have no part or portion in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Peter nails him as an unbeliever. But it's interesting in the way Peter identifies his problem. Peter says, you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You see, if you don't understand how it truly comes, then you fall back on what fleshly wisdom can provide. And fleshly wisdom says that you can get something if you give something. They do not come with the knowledge that we have spiritually to understand how true faith comes, to understand truly who God is. But they do come with a knowledge of sort. That is a knowledge only known by men by instinct or men in the flesh. The Greek word for instinct that Jude uses in verse 10, it literally means natural knowledge. Natural knowledge. Jude's point is that these men are limited in what they can know to what is natural or what is in the natural state of man, as opposed to knowledge given to us supernaturally by God through the Spirit of God. So these men know what everyone comes into the world knowing by birth, by nature, but they lack the spiritual insight that comes only by the Spirit to those of faith. Remember, the Bible uses the term natural not in a positive sense. The world has started to use it in an entirely different way, we know. But the Bible uses it to describe sinful, fallen man. Natural, in the sense that we have not yet received the Spirit and become supernaturally enlightened. Natural men, Paul says elsewhere in Scripture, cannot relate to the Lord or to spiritual truth. It is beyond their grasp. It is beyond their reach. Natural men are selfish. They have evil intentions and they have evil motives. This is all of who we were before we came to faith. Paul says we were all like them. Sons and daughters of disobedience in Ephesians. So, a natural person is precluded by their nature in understanding things that people by spirit can know. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, 12 through 14, he says, Now we have received, speaking to the church, we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the spirit. Combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. And then Paul ends with this. And he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. Paul's point is that it is not merely a matter of choice, a matter of training, of experience, of familiarity. It's a spiritual, fundamentally a spiritual issue that the natural, the unbeliever is precluded from understanding spiritual truths that come from God because those truths can only be understood in a spiritual sense by a living spirit, one that has been quickened by the spirit of God himself. Uh, I use the example of communication theory at its basic level, as you all remember from college, I'm sure, or high school. It is a sender and a receiver and a message. Well, in a spiritual context, the sender is God. So the receiver must also be God. For the message is only to be appraised or understood spiritually. 
So it stands to reason that before the unbeliever can hear spiritual wisdom from God, he must already be enlightened by that same God. He must have been born again. He must have the spirit working in his heart. Paul says that they cannot understand these things because they are spiritually appraised. There is nothing more dangerous within the church than natural men pretending to have spiritual insight and then preying on unsuspecting, immature believers who don't know the difference or at least haven't taken any time to do their due diligence. And that danger comes in two ways. It's twofold. First, the men who are natural, pretending to be enlightened, are delivering the opposite of what they claim to bring. They claim to bring truth concerning God and his desires, but because they have no insight to offer on those matters, they can only bring human wisdom and human understanding, which is always the opposite of godly insight. It's natural, Jude says, like the instinct of an animal. It's knowledge that doesn't come from study or disciplined submission to the authority of God. On the contrary, it comes from instinct, from the gut, from an understanding that's present at birth, which is by its nature, contrary to God's truth. And so, the faithful who are hungry for spiritual truth are sucked in by these men who come claiming to have such great spiritual insight, and yet they receive knowledge that can only feed the flesh. It's a kind of knowledge that leads to death, in that it speaks to the part of them that is dead, the flesh. That's the first thing that makes it so dangerous when wolves, as you might say, come in amongst the sheep is that they promise something they can't deliver. And what they do deliver is very dangerous to the young and immature Christian. The second reason these men are so dangerous to the church is their teaching appeals to the flesh in a way that is the opposite of what the Spirit is endeavoring to do in their lives. They speak with the Spirit they know, that is the Spirit of the world, and that Spirit is intent on seducing the flesh. So they promise enlightenment, can't deliver it, and then stir up fleshly lust. They actually produce the exact opposite outcome in the body of Christ that good teaching is supposed to produce. Jude says these men will be destroyed by these things. Those who live in the flesh and seek to please the flesh will die by the flesh. Paul says in Romans 8, 5 through 8, he says, For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, and those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the spirit is life and peace, because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God. And then he adds, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Well, then in verse 11, Jude pronounces woe on these men, and he begins to give us insight into their motives. We already know that their motive stems from the fact that they live in the flesh rather than in the spirit that they claim. Now we begin to see how their flesh profits from what they do in the church. Verse 11, he says, Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain, and for pay they have rushed headlong into the error of Balaam and perished in the rebellion of Korah. Well, to pronounce woe against someone simply means to declare Someone to be subject to a coming judgment, to coming judgment. The Lord, you may remember, pronounces woe against Pharisees, scribes, lawyers at times, and does so because those men lead Israel astray. And then 
Elsewhere in Scripture, in Tribulation, in the book of Revelation, we hear angels pronouncing woe to the world because of the coming judgments they will see. And now, Jude pronounces woe upon these false teachers. And I would argue, by extension, he pronounces woe against all false teachers. False teachers follow the lusts of their flesh into the grave and ultimately into hell. Which brings us to their motivation. And if you didn't already notice, Jude's sixth triad in Jude 11. First, he says, they have gone the way of Cain. Obviously, we need to revisit the story of Cain a little if we're going to understand why he brought up this man's name. We know Cain is Adam's first son. He was a man who gets in trouble with the Lord, and as a result, the Lord sends him away from the family. What was Cain's mistake? Well, in short, Cain believed that his relationship with God was little more than a business transaction. Cain would hand over something of value to the Lord. And then the Lord would respond with blessing and approval. In Genesis 4, we read this. Genesis 4.4, Abel on his part also brought of the firstlings of the flock and of their fat portions, and the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering. But for Cain and for his offering, he had no regard. So Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? If you do well... Will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you, but you must master it. Cain and Abel both bring tithes from their respective labors. Cain from the harvest, Abel from the flock. But Abel understood more than Cain did concerning his relationship with the Lord. Abel understood that faith was more than simply tithing. Abel understood sacrifice was required to cover sin. And so, Scripture says he brought not just a tithe, but also a sacrifice, while Cain brought only a tithe. So the Lord showed favor to Abel for his sacrifice and tithe, while it says the Lord did not favor Cain's tithe, for there was no sacrifice there. Obviously, that upset Cain, who was expecting that his business transaction would be honored. The Lord was obligated in Cain's mind to repay Cain, For his gift, and so Cain has his countenance fall. Another way to say it is he is supremely disappointed in the Lord's response. And then the Lord explains to Cain that he has no reason to be angry. Because he says, you have the same opportunity to do what your brother did. That is to tithe and to sacrifice. And he says it in a way that our English does not do justice to. In the original Hebrew, the language is a bit obscure. And that's why English translations are so hard to understand. They've really completely lost the sense of what was written originally in the Hebrew. In the original Hebrew, he says the lamb of the sin offering is lying at the door. Cain only needed to take that sacrifice as Abel did, and the Lord would be Cain's master as well. And if you want a deeper explanation of how the text leads us to that conclusion, you can go online and I invite you to listen to the Genesis study in that section. But Cain never submits to the Lord's authority. Cain offered something to the Lord, expecting something in return, not understanding that it is by faith and faith alone that we come to the Lord and that we must approach with a sacrifice to cover for sin. So how have these false teachers repeated the mistake or gone the way of Cain? Well, like Cain, they don't understand, being unbelievers, that a true relationship with God comes only on the basis of a sacrifice for sin. They don't understand the sacrifice of Christ on the cross 
And they don't understand that without sacrifice, there could be no relationship and therefore no blessing. Instead, they understand the relationship in a different way. They say that a relationship with God is entirely a business transaction. Money changes hands. God's blessings are purchased. We give God something he wants, and then we get what we want. They believe this, and they teach you this. Have you not heard this? This is the error of Cain, and it reflects a lack of spiritual understanding. A natural man only understands what profits the flesh. The unbelieving world operates on the principle of self-centeredness and pay for play. The natural man gets that and only that and cannot understand the God of grace. A natural man sees truth and true faith as foolishness, as Paul says. So these teachers tell themselves, and I truly believe they think this is true, for it's all they can understand themselves. They believe and they tell others and they tell their students that God requires payment for his love, for his blessing. And conveniently, these false teachers are ready to collect your money on God's behalf. Jude says that because they want to be paid, because they think of God's relationship with men as a business transaction, they rush headlong into the error of Balaam. The Greek word for rushed headlong, it's one word. It's literally the word for poured, like a river rushing downhill. Once again, it's instinctive, it's natural, it's unthinking. Their motive for false teaching is to gain money. Jude says this is repeating the error of Balaam. Now, Balaam is another character from the Old Testament that we need at least a few minutes of reminders on so that we can fully appreciate how Jude is making this comparison. Balaam was a prophet of God. Like all prophets, he was supposed to serve God's people. But instead, Balaam peddled himself to a foreign king, a man named Balak, who was determined to destroy Israel as Israel wandered in the desert and threatened Balak's territory. And in the end, the Lord prevented Balaam from speaking against the nation of Israel, against his people. You may remember there's the famous moment in which he is rebuked by a donkey who speaks because God gives the donkey the power to speak. And you'll find that story in Numbers chapter 22. Peter tells us more about this man Balaam and about his errors specifically in 2 Peter. 2 Peter 2:14 through 16. Peter says, speaking of these false teachers himself, Peter says, they have eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin, enticing unstable souls, having a heart trained in greed, accursed children. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. But he received a rebuke for his own transgression, for a mute donkey, speaking with the voice of a man, restrained the madness of the prophet. Peter says, false teachers have eyes of adultery. They never cease from sin. They entice unstable souls and they have hearts trained in greed. Trained. They train one another, by the way, in conferences that you can attend. <laughs> then Peter says that false teachers follow the example of Balaam in loving the wages of unrighteousness. The wages of unrighteousness. Jesus speaks about the wages of unrighteousness in Luke chapter 16. It's a great parable of the unrighteous manager. Worth your time to go study. But Peter says these false teachers follow the example of Balaam in the fact 
that they love wages of unrighteousness. Balaam's true love wasn't for the for God or for God's people. His true love was money. And he found a way to use the service he gave to God's people as a means of profiting. Ironically, he was a prophet, but with a PH. Seeking profit with an F. He turned religious service into a money-making enterprise. Those who do the same today are repeating the error of Balaam. They rush headlong, as Jude says, into that error. So going the way of Balaam means having a greedy heart, corrupting your religious service, and making it an opportunity to fleece God's people. So when we take Cain's error and Balaam's error, and we put those together, we arrive at a powerful and destructive combination. You have men teaching that God demands payment before he will respond to us in blessing. Then you take with that the demand for the payment out of a greedy heart. It's a powerful message. We become, the teacher becomes, this false teacher becomes God's debt collector. And their greedy hearts drive them to devise increasingly clever ways to fleece you. As unstable, immature Christians are then prone to consider these needs and to respond because they don't have the wisdom of the word of God guiding them. But the damage doesn't stop there because Balaam's error goes a step further in the story of Balaam. Peter reminds us that the prophet Balaam was not permitted to speak against Israel. And yet he still wanted the money that he had been offered by the king. So he devised an alternative way to destroy Israel. We get a nice summary of it in actually, of all places, the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 2, verse 14. Jesus speaking to a church in the seven letters to the seven churches, he says, but I have a few things against you because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. Balaam taught the king ways in which he could entice the men of Israel into idolatry and sexual sin with women of Moab which eventually weakened the nation and got Balak what he wanted, which was a victory over the people of Israel. So though Balaam couldn't speak against Israel because God wouldn't let him, he found other ways to earn the money he wanted from Balak. And that's also happening in the church today among these false teachers. Men who come in, not only preaching the way of Cain, that is that we have to pay to play with God, and not just doing it for the greedy needs that Balaam exhibited in his life, but they've gone a step further. They begin to trip up God's people by enticing them into idolatry and into a lust for earthly wealth. It's not just enough that they take the money from the people. They also place in the people's hearts a desire for the same thing. They emphasize their own wealth and their own prosperity, which, by the way, came at the hands of these people as an example of what God would do for them as well. It's a marketing ploy. And as P.T. Barnum famously said, there's a sucker born every minute. Finally, in the last part of that sixth triad, Jude explains that these men have unbridled ambition and he compares them to the rebellion of Korah and says they will share his fate. So here's a third Old Testament character we have to learn a little about. Korah's story told in Numbers 16, Numbers 16, 1 through 4. Now Korah, the son of Ishar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi, with Dethan and Abraham and sons of Eliab and On the son of Peleth, 
sons of Reuben, took action. And they rose up before Moses, together with some of the sons of Israel, 250 leaders of the congregation, chosen in the assembly, men of renown. They assembled together against Moses and Aaron and said to them, You have gone far enough, for all the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is in their midst. So why do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? When Moses heard this, he fell on his face. Korah leads a rebellion against Moses and Aaron in the desert by questioning whether these men really had the right to represent God to the people and says, as you saw, we're all holy. We don't need you anymore. We don't need leaders anymore. They demanded that they could rule themselves. Obviously, Moses wasn't pleased and he warned the people not to be associated with this rebellion. In fact, at one point, Moses tells the people they have to separate themselves from these teachers entirely. They couldn't even be near the tents of these people or even touch their possessions. Otherwise, they're going to be caught up in the same judgment. And then the Lord appears and the time for judgment comes. That we hear in Numbers 16 also, but a bit further down, verses 28 through 33. Moses said, By this you shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all these deeds. For this is not my doing. If these men die the death of all men, or if they suffer the fate of all men, then the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord brings about an entirely new thing, and the ground opens its mouth and swallows them all with all that is theirs, and they descend alive into Sheol, then you will understand that these men have spurned the Lord. I would guess so. Verse 31, as he finished speaking all these words, the ground that was under them split open and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up and their households and all the men who belonged to Korah with their possessions. And so they and all that belonged to them went down alive to Sheol and the earth closed over them and they perished from the midst of the assembly. The heir of Korah was to rebel against the Lord and his appointed representatives and to think he could get away with it. But God will not be mocked, and sooner or later the rebel in the camp is going to be judged. And we need to steer clear of them if we're to avoid getting caught up in the collateral damage that will ensue because of their error. So what Jude is teaching in his three examples are the three motives of the teacher. They share in Cain's motive, that is, they think with their flesh and they want to gain God's favor by a business transaction because they don't understand grace. They pray God, he returns the favor, they think. Secondly, they follow Balaam's lead. They see religious service as a means to personal financial gain. And so their greed sees no problem at all with profiting at the expense of the people that they're supposed to be ministering to or say they are. And then finally, they share in the rebellion of Korah. They dispute any authority in the church. They expect that they can operate free of any fear or consequences whatsoever without impunity. You see that in the way they behave. If you've ever heard some of the things false teachers are bound to say from time to time about themselves or God. It's not just heresy, it's ridiculous. And it's scary. You wonder if a lightning bolt's going to come out of the sky at any moment. You don't want to stand too close to them. And that's the message that he's leaving us with as he finishes with Korah, that they will share the fate of these men. Jude wants us to have an even better understanding of these men and how they operate so that we would avoid them and we would not be caught up in their mistakes and in their false teaching. And then to do that, he offers six illustrations, wonderful illustrations of false teachers using examples taken from nature. 
And in these six, we're going to find both the seventh and the eighth triads of his letter. And they come in Jude 12 and 13. So the first four are in verse 12. The last two are in verse 13. And together they form two triads or six examples of how to see or how to recognize these men. Each illustration conveys an essential thought. So altogether, we're looking at six points or six thoughts about false teachers. Let's read verses 12 through 13. He says, these are the men who are hidden reefs in your love feasts when they feast with you without fear, caring for themselves. Clouds without water, carried along by winds. Autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted. Wild waves of the sea, casting up their own shame like foam. Wandering stars, for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. So, Jude starts first with saying these men are like hidden reefs in the church's love feast. Now, in the early church, congregations had adopted a practice of honoring the requirement for communion in the form of a full meal, rather than in just the elements that we come to know today. And the entire congregation would enjoy a large meal or a feast as the communion observance at the end of whatever gathering they were conducting. And since everyone attended these events, the whole congregation, you would expect the false teachers would be amongst them, naturally, as long as they were still included in the congregation. But Jude says that the presence of false teachers in these gatherings could be compared to rocky reefs in the sense that reefs are notorious for causing shipwreck. Reefs lying just below the water are almost impossible to see as you come upon them. So if a ship's captain is not already aware of their existence and steering clear of them as a result, he might run his vessel right up onto the reef unexpectedly. And the shipwreck leaves the ship damaged and it stalls it on its journey. It's not going anywhere once it hits that reef. That's Jude's point, of course. The presence of false teachers in the gathering is a dangerous peril for Christians in the body. Like ships on a journey, a Christian may come across one of these false teachers in their journey, and a man or a woman would have then the chance to see their faith shipwrecked in that they're damaged by the influence and their journey of sanctification and spiritual maturity stalls out as they go after the false teaching. Secondly, Jude says, they only care for themselves. That was the second point. Now, my English translation really ruins the comparison by the way it's translated here because the Greek says it's far better, far more uh, eloquently, What Jude literally wrote was, they shepherd only themselves. They shepherd only themselves. The picture from nature here is of a shepherd with a flock in the field. But the shepherd is only caring for his own needs. He's feeding himself while the flock that he's supposedly leading is dying from lack of pasture. He's not feeding the flock. And feeding sheep, as you know, is a common metaphor in the New Testament for teaching people, teaching God's people, spiritual truth the spiritual nourishment of the Word of God. So that is the proper and expected role of every pastor, to feed Christ's sheep. If you love him, you feed his sheep. False teachers, as we just learned, have a totally different agenda. They only care about feeding themselves, and not with the Word of God, but with your pockets. Yet they portray themselves as pastors, and shepherds of God's people. Jude says, don't be fooled. They only care about themselves. Thirdly, they are clouds without water carried by the wind. If you think about a cloud, 
It's a promise of something good, specifically of rain. Rain is another common metaphor in Scripture. It's used as a picture of God's blessing coming down from heaven, raining down on us. And, of course, we know that rain comes from clouds that gather. These men, Jude says, are like those clouds, but they blow in, promising great blessing from God, but they have no blessing to offer. Instead, they only manage to cover up the sun and increase darkness. Instead of giving a blessing, they obscure the blessing of God's truth. Fourth, Jude's next triad begins with a description of autumn trees without fruit, twice dead. Fruit trees, like most trees, I guess, lose their leaves in the winter. And in that period of each year, they look essentially dead. In fact, until spring comes, you could not tell the difference between a truly dead tree, one that had happened to die over the winter, and one that's simply dormant. They look identical. They both look dead. When spring arrives, then you'll know which ones are truly alive. And with the arrival of leaves brings a promise of a blessing of fruit in the autumn that this tree will produce. Fruit also is a biblical metaphor of healthy spiritual outcomes. But these false teachers are like autumn trees. That is a tree when it should have fruit in the autumn, but one that does not. They never bring a crop. They never produce good fruit. They have no spiritual benefit to the body. Furthermore, he says they are doubly or twice dead in the sense that they don't just look dead like a winter tree does waiting for its leaves. They truly are dead. They're the tree in winter that has died, so to speak, that has no real life. Spiritually speaking, they're unbelievers. We know this already. Therefore, they are spiritually dead. And it's therefore no wonder that they produce no fruit. Jude says they will be plucked out by the roots as farmers destroy trees that don't produce fruit. He says they are like raging waves foaming up their own shame. Imagine yourself standing on a beach looking at the waves. They're ceaseless. They just continuously roar, beating against the shore. That evokes a sense of restlessness, of futility, of a lack of peace. The movement never stops. The sound never stops. The energy and the chaos and the breaking of the waves. It's just continuous. It's never peaceful. And that's the comparison Jude is making here to the false teachers. They are forever stirring up discontent within the congregation. They tell us all the time, you're missing something. You thought you had it all, but you're missing something. And you need what I have to offer. And it's financial or it's healing. It's something temporal. It's never something eternal. It's always something of the here and now. You need to feel better now, look better now, have more now, be your best life now. And that is a source not of contentment, but of discontent. That's a lie. And the fact that you can't achieve it leaves you looking on the outside in, wondering why can't I have what apparently everyone else has or can get. It's like the hamster on the wheel, thinking they're getting somewhere. There's got to be an end to this road sooner or later, and there isn't. That's the sense of what these men are teaching, is a kind of contentment which is a mask for discontentment. The untrained mind begins to consider their words while forgetting Scripture. The Bible teaches believers that we have everything we need in the reality of what we received in Jesus Christ. Second Peter 1, 2 and 3 says this, Grace and peace be multiplied to you, in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that 
His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. You have been granted everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him who called. When we let our minds wander from the Word of God, we can fall for men who teach that there's something else we need. They rob us of our peace and our contentment in Christ, Jude says. But their false teaching will be a testimony of shame for them, as Jude says, comparing it to the foam that comes up out of the water. It almost, by the picture of it, suggests vapid, empty kind of fomenting discontent. That's a play on words in the English, but I think a useful way to consider it. We're stirring up discontent like foam in the water. Finally, Jude ends the eighth triad with a comparison to wandering stars for whom a darkness has been reserved. The Bible uses stars as another metaphor or symbol, commonly for angels. And that's the intention here as well. Wandering, though, speaks to the fall of a third of the angelic realm following the sin of Satan. They wandered, as it were, away from God, away from his truth and into judgment. And the Bible says that the endless darkness of the lake of fire was originally created, not for man, but for the demons and for Satan himself. Matthew 25, 41, Jesus says, Then he will also say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which had been prepared for the devil and his angels. So the lake of fire will serve double duty, in that it not only serves as the place of judgment for the angelic realm that rebelled, but also for unbelieving men from all history. Interestingly, Hebrews says that the Lord does not offer help to fallen angels, but, praise the Lord, he did make a way available to men to receive mercy. So these false teachers are like the fallen angels in that they wander away from the opportunity for glory. Instead, they are on a one-way trip to the lake of fire. As unbelievers and as men who teach others to sin, they are stumbling blocks who face a terrible fate in the future, according to Scripture. And Peter says this concerning those men, Second Peter 2.21, for it would be better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than to have known it, to turn away from the holy commandment handed on to them. False teachers have come, Peter says, to know the way. What he means is they have heard the gospel message. They haven't believed in it so as to be saved. They have come to know it in the sense that they've been exposed to it. They've heard it. They've had the opportunity to hear it truthfully. Because they've operated inside the walls of the church. Notice Peter says that they have known the way of righteousness. He didn't say they have known righteousness. They have known the way to it. They've heard it. They know how to get to heaven, but they aren't willing to make the trip. That is, by faith. And Peter says that in turning away from the commandment to believe, and that's the way the scriptures speak of the gospel, it is a commandment to believe, and then there is the sin of unbelief for failing to heed that commandment. Peter says that they turn away from the commandment to believe, and as a result, they suffer a worse punishment in the end. Were it possible for us to imagine that somehow, according to Scripture, there is difference in judgment within the lake of fire, within the eternal realm of punishment, there are differences allocated, and for that reason, there will be a time or be a a place for some in there worse than for others. So let's sum up what we learned in this section of Jude's letter. False teachers, first and foremost, are unbelievers. We're not saying that a person who teaches something incorrectly, something falsely, has instantly found themselves becoming a false teacher in the sense of what Jude is describing here. No, we can say there are false teachers, capital F, capital T, 
And then there are teachers who teach falsely from time to time. False teachers are a very specific class of evil men, and they are the subject of our study. They're the ones we've been looking at. But any believer at any time can and will teach error. Inadvertently, foolishly, lazily, whatever cause. And that does not make that person a false teacher or put them under the condemnation of what Jude has written here or what Peter writes in his second letter. No teacher, save Christ himself, is perfect in his or her understanding of Scripture. Paul says we all share that limitation. He says in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then, speaking of our day of glory to come, but then face to face, meaning we will see God truly. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I have been fully known. If Paul himself can say he only knows in part now, where does that leave us? So, Every Christian can teach incorrectly from time to time. That's not Jude's concern. His concern is that we know certain unbelieving people, men primarily in his day, and we must understand the dangers of these men, recognize the pattern of how they operate, and be prepared to respond when we see it and not fall prey to it. Jude asks us to recognize their evil fruit. Don't become a victim to their greed. Don't trust their empty promises of blessing. Don't let them rob you of your contentment. And don't stand too close to them because at any moment they might be swallowed up in judgment. (laughs) Next time we get back together, we'll finish this letter and we'll look at another apocryphal reference out of the book of Enoch and conclude as he concludes his letter. Pray with me. Father, I ask that you would give us insight when we see false teaching. The insight, Father, to recognize these men for who they truly are. Don't let us be so foolish and naive, Father, as to think that we can withstand their false teaching and we can counter it in our own strength. Let us, Father, listen to your counsel in the word. Let us flee from them. Let us put them outside the congregation to the best of our ability. Let us warn our brothers and sisters of their influence. Let us seek after men and women who teach us with an honest heart so that we may be ready for those days and be prepared to to address what comes. Let us steer clear of them, Father, for we know that you have appointed them to an end that is just and deserved, and we must respect that while at the same time, Father, preaching the truth so that those who might fall under their influence might be recovered by the teaching of your word. We ask, Father, that you would uh, just remind us that in these last days, false teachers will continue to multiply. And remember that this is, as you said it would be, before the end. That our rejoicing in the fact that the end is near would not cause us to overlook the fact that there will be those who will deceive many. Let us be prepared to not be one of those many, Father. Thank you for the word and its guidance. and It's a lamp to our feet, helping us to stay in the path of righteousness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.